Welcome to the Art of the Guillotine. This week, my guest is Troy Takaki, who recently spoke at the Edifest panels in New York. His career has spanned just under 20 years and has crossed multiple genres of films. Two genres he's become an important part of include romantic comedies and horror. His work includes classic horror flicks such as Children of the Corn 666 and the classically campy TV show Tales from the Crypt. His romantic comedies include the unique Sweet Home Alabama, the genre-redefining Hitch, and his latest New in Town. Troy joins me from New York where he's currently cutting The Bounty, continuing his long-term partnership with Andy Tennant. Let me first thank you for allowing me to interview you. No problem. Let's start with, how, how did you get into the industry? How did I start editing, or how did I get in the industry? Let's start with the industry. With the industry. So I graduated from film school in San Francisco State in uh, what's called the Production Corps, where they let like 20 people a year actually make movies. Um, and a bunch of us moved to L.A. at the same time. And... It was very helpful because we all sort of lived in the same houses and were roommates. And then when one person would get a production assistant job, they'd often get a call for another one and call, you know, just shout down the hallway, Hey, Troy, do you want a job? <laughs> <laughs> but where I kind of lucked out, um, because what you really want to do is try to get your first job in the section of the industry that you want to work in, and I always wanted to be an editor, was that I got a PA, post-PA job on a TV show called DEA back in 1990, where I worked helping out editorial, like, you know, Xeroxing things and such. But where I, where I also sort of lucked out was that the show got canceled after about six episodes, but back then, if it was in order for 12, they would actually still make 12 episodes. Okay. So we continued making shows that were never going to go on the air. So everything became very, very lax as far as protocol goes. And so the assistant editors would let me load dailies and put in line script and do outputs and all sorts of stuff. So I really got to learn how to be an assistant editor then. And soon after that, I got an assistant editing job on Tales from the Crypt. Okay. And from then on, I worked as an assistant editor. You said that you'd always wanted to be an editor. What, what, what about editing was it that attracted you? Well, truthfully, and I've heard this from other people too, I went to, to college to be a photographer. And the interesting part about my photography is I never really cared that much about what I took pictures of and would spend all my time in the dark room manipulating the pictures, uh, making double exposures and solarizing them and, and doing all sorts of cool stuff in the, you know, in the dark room with with my uh, pictures. Then when I went to San Francisco State, I took a film class and started said, "Wow, this is really fun." And very early on, I discovered that my favorite part of the filmmaking process was actually the editing process, the sort of putting the stuff together in a dark room, which was very similar to what I liked about photography. You've had a really interesting balance between romantic comedies and horror flicks in your editing career. What do you think led to this? And how do you feel these two types of film editing influence each other? How do they influence it? They actually don't influence each other at all, as far okay. as I'm concerned. Um, there is very little overlap. The interesting part about sort of the horror genre and the romantic genre is both of them have actually quite a few rules to them. That um, once you learn the rules, you it makes it much easier to edit the films. You don't think of films as having like editorial rules to them, like how to scare somebody when they come around a corner or how to make them laugh, but they do. 
And so that's the interesting part about both. They're, they're very, like, um, they are absolute genres that have rules to them. But the interesting part about what you're saying is I actually, when I worked in television, I worked doing sort of action CGI-type television shows. And what really happens is you do actually end up getting caught in certain genres because not only do people think that, oh, they, this is a comedy editor. He'll, he likes to, he's good at editing comedy and he likes to edit comedy, so I'm only going to interview him for comedy movies. But it sort of works out that way because the people you work for also tend to only make comedies or tend to only make horror movies or mm-hmm. tend to only make action television. And sometimes it's actually very hard to break out of a genre and into another one. You know, and actually some of the movies I like the best that I've, are sort of those low-budget independent um, horror movies that I've edited. You know, and, and once again, it's sort of that was early in my feature career. Mm-hmm. And I have not edited sort of an action movie or a horror movie in, in years and years and years. Yeah. Now I really am sort of in that romantic comedy genre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, what are some of these rules that you're speaking of? Like, can you give me a few examples? Yeah, I mean, in both cases, tone is really, really important. It's like the way that you get someone scared is by setting a tone, usually through music, but also through sort of editing and and cinematography to make people sort of on edge so that when you do that scare and you make the loud music hit at the same time or the loud sound at the same time, they jump. Children of the Corn is, a, is an interesting example of that, where at first I tried to make the movie with music that was sort of like really hip and really like rock and roll based. Mm-hmm. And it worked actually kind of better as a movie. It was a really fun movie, but it wasn't very scary. And then we rescored the whole thing with just that sort of tension music through the whole thing, that eerie, weird tension music. And it was a much scarier movie that way. And that's where I sort of learned the genre of, like, you know, how to make somebody jump when the person all of a sudden is behind them, you know? Mm -hmm. Because uh, if you don't have the, the person ready to jump, then they won't jump. In the same way with uh, romantic comedy, you have to make the audience like the characters and be ready to laugh at them, mm-hmm. or else it just looks like, you know, shtick. You know, yeah. It's kind of like, you're like, oh, that's not that funny. But if you can get people like ready to laugh and enjoying themselves, then they do think that same you know, scene or that same joke is funny. So I, you know, this is what I say all the time in, in comedy is like, you, you don't really necessarily need to make things funny. You have to make things fun. Because if they're having fun with the movie, they'll laugh at the jokes. If you try to just make things funny, um, they won't necessarily laugh at the jokes. You, you can't produce funny, but you can actually sort of produce fun. That's actually a really good point, that if you're engaged with the film and having fun, you'll just go along with it. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you if you like the characters and you want them to, to succeed and you want them to make you laugh, then then it's much easier to get the audience to laugh. It's it's sort of like stick it. I was going in and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this film. And then I just got really into it. And I was like, all right, let's go. It's having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. That was actually really fun to edit, as you probably could tell. It was one of my, one of my fancier edited movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about like just introducing the characters. Um, how did you come up with that? And how did you approach inter- introducing all these characters in that film? 
in particular? In, in Stick It? Yeah. Um, that was actually an interesting movie because, and this will happen at times with, with directors, is that director actually had a very clear vision on the, the type of movie that she was trying to make and how she was going to, you know, introduce characters and, and the tone that she was going to have and the music that she was going to use. That's not always the case. Sometimes mm-hmm. the editor uh, really is sort of, you know, um, helping guide the film, and sometimes the director in post-production is the is definitely much more of the captain. Um, and in this one, she definitely was much more of the captain. She like really was like, here's the music I plan. I mean, I've been planning to use for this movie for two years. Uh, now I w- did a really good, you know, ha- had a lot of uh, leeway as far as like making her vision become something she was happy with. But she had a very clear vision, which was actually really nice. Just to jump back for a sec, with regards to cutting shows like Ally McBeal and Desperate Housewives, for shows that have such a, a structured style to them in the sense that, or a certain pattern, I guess you could say, like, you know the structure of the, the ep- each episode, what is your process to, de- to helping the directors or the producers develop this style or approach? Well... Actually, in both those cases, I came on later in the process, and that is the interesting part of editing television, is that if you are not in the first seven episodes of the show, the template is usually set, Mm -hmm. and so you actually have very little influence on the editorial template of the show. And what you your job is is actually to continue making the shows look like the past shows. What what I'm saying is that by the time you're on the third season of Alan McBeal, mm-hmm. you want this episode of Alan McBeal to look like one from last season. So you're really much more of a craftsperson than an artist. Mm-hmm. Now there's something fun about that because you know the rules, and if you can work on a really good show. It's fun to actually sort of make this Ally McBeal look like other ones, and and if you have really good acting, that's what you're doing. But if you're in those first, if you're particularly if you're in the pilot, but if you watch, if you watch the first few episodes of Ally McBeal, they look nothing like the thirteenth episode of Ally mm-hmm. McBeal. It really takes often in a lot of shows, about six or seven episodes for them to really reach their stride and say, "This is our show." I'd like to jump to Fool's Gold. Um, how did you become linked in to Fool's Gold, and did you have any challenges in the editing suite, and how did you overcome them? Well, Fool's Gold is directed by Andy Tennant, who I have now edited. I'm working on my fourth movie with him. So as far as getting the job, if you, you know, quite often the director will end up hiring the same editor over and over mm-hmm. and over which is great if you're working with a director that you like that works all the time. So as far as getting the job, it was just Andy called me and said, this is the next movie we're doing. Okay. As far as the challenges of that movie, it was one of my first movies where I had a significant amount of second unit action footage coming in at the same time as my first unit character footage coming in. So... Uh, it was fun that way, where, where I'd, be, I'd be working, you know, closely with the second unit director, making sure that he, you know, he was filming what we needed for the, you know, underwater fight scene to fill in the gaps where the first unit director had filmed the stars doing it, and now the second unit director is 
is adding the footage with the stunt people. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm also, you know, uh, editing the romantic comedy scene that is being, you know, was shot the same day uh, by the director, Andy. That's interesting because it brings up the question I was going to ask, which is uh, there's a lot of parallel action and storytelling going on throughout that film. And it sets up right in the very first scene with the underwater, above water, and then also over at the two guys on the beach. How did you go about structuring this film or cutting the parallel action to keep the pace moving but also keeping it organized so that the audience doesn't get confused. Yeah, because one thing you'll find in that movie, which is different than a lot of action movies, is that we actually tried to keep everything being sort of like simple and easy to follow as far as the action goes. These days, a lot of action movies, it's like sleight of hand. It's you, you try to make it look really cool, and you aren't quite sure who is hitting who and who is, you know, jumping out which window. And we sort of followed more of a straightforward editing approach, so you can really tell what was going on underwater. Uh, as far as the parallel action goes, it's like that's where you know the whole tone things comes in to play, also, which is like how do you make it so it's like, oh, is it dangerous when the when the boat blows up, or is it funny when the boat blows up? We wanted it to be funny. So, yes, we had to make sure that we showed the guys up on the beach watching the boat blow up and then cut back to them shaking their heads going, oh, no, not again. Of course, that whole sequence is shot over you know, several months where we'd get one little piece here and one little piece there, and then we'd reshoot some shot because, you know, the the sky wasn't right or something like that. <laughs> and then some piece of CGI would come in with the boat falling behind them. And it's like, is the boat too big? Is the boat too small? Let's increase it 15%. Let's decrease it 5%, you know? So there was an awful lot of organizing, you know, every shot in that as far as, as making sure that they all went together properly. Did you come into troubles with that since pieces were coming in throughout over a couple months like how does that affect your editing if you can't finish the scene yes i mean it's kind of easier when you have a a scene where you have all the pieces at one time you get used to that i mean i've been doing it for a very long time and sequest we would have all sorts of scenes where you'd have like some shot of a guy in a submarine and then uh, you start off with a little you know pencil sketch of a submarine running into a rock or something and that you know becomes then an animatic which is several sketches put together and you sort of time them out with little dissolves and say I think it's going to be about a second and a half long and then you'll end up with a wireframe and truthfully it's like it's a different type of editing you just have to get used to the fact that it's like you're not always going to have all your footage it's interesting also because in the same way as like a, the editors in animation, you become a lot more involved in predetermining the shot. Like, you know, working with the director and saying, oh, yeah, well, I think that the, you know, the, the ship should fall this direction behind them and engulf them in sand this way. And so it's, it's really fun that way. But yes, it's, it's much different than if you have all the footage and you're like, here are all the pieces. Quite often you'll say, hey, I'm missing this piece and this piece and this piece. We have to go get them. It's almost like a mystery to put together. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess you know, because I often say that editing is like putting a puzzle together where you have way too many pieces. This is actually kind of different because it's putting a puzzle together and you have way too many pieces. And you can go get more pieces if you want. You know, or you're going to have more pieces coming months and months later. 
because you you know sometimes with the CGI you're not going to get it for you know yeah. six months down the road and you have to have worked out whether or not you have all of the live action pieces to go together with those CGI pieces that you're going to get mm-hmm. later on because you can't go back and reshoot a close up and say oh you know if I had really thought about it we should have had a close up of Ma- you know Matthew in this shot mm-hmm. and they said well you should have thought of that a long time ago because we can't shoot him in a water tank again. It'd be a very expensive reshoot, that's for sure. With regards to Hitch, when you're cutting something like a comedy, there's a lot of ad-libbing and trying different things. How do you go about cutting that to preserve the story, or how do you find the story within the these ad-libbed pieces? I've never worked on a film that I can think of where there was tons of ad-libbing, where it's like the entire thing was, was sort of like sketch comedy. As far as Hitch, yes, you would end up with like a bunch of comic pieces that went on way too long. And really the hardest part is to figure out how to make it be restrained enough to cut it down from like a minute to 14 seconds when you think a minute is really funny too. But for a movie, a minute of sort of walking around, you know, dancing or having trouble sitting down with your hot dog just doesn't work. So it's like, how do you make it four shots? instead of 20 shots and that just you know it's tough in some ways because when you watch the 20 shots it's really funny but in a movie it doesn't work now also with with comedy actors a lot of pacing will come through their delivery and their their acting and in hitch you have two very different comedic styles you have kevin james who's more i guess visual comedy and then you have will smith how did you go about balancing between the two in the editing you know what i mean really i let them balance themselves Truthfully, it's like you are right that we actually had a bunch of different kinds of comic actors in the movie, and one of them, Kevin, was really big, and Will was rather restrained. But uh, and then the director really got the, got it, so it's like pumped Will up, I think, bigger than than he normally would go, and mm-hmm. let him sort of let loose. And then I guess as far as my job was sort of to, especially with all of the sort of dancing and the, you know, added lip stuff of, of Kevin's is to sort of bring it back down to a reasonable level so it doesn't seem disproportionate compared to the rest of the, the, the movie. And then really, I mean, the, the director and the cinematographer got a lot of really funny, funny shots mm-hmm. in the movie, which is very helpful because it sort of also helped to balance out you know, going a little bigger than than real life. A lot of wide-angle shots will, will like, pop into frame with this big allergic reaction to his face and stuff like that. Hitch, there's a few deleted scenes, but with regards to Sweet Home Alabama, there was a whole character, Aaron Vanderbilt, played by Catherine Town, that was removed from the film. What was the reason behind this? And if you could give us some insight into how that decision came to be made. First of all, kind of amazing that you can take a whole character out of a movie. Yeah. That literally, she was in like 10 or 12 scenes throughout the entire movie. It wasn't just like a section. She was like in Act 1 and Act 2 and Act 3, you know, and she was she was a relatively big character. And it is kind of amazing that you actually can pull a whole character out of a movie that way and not, you know, influence a movie that much. But also, I guess tells you something about that character, how unnecessary that character was. Really, um, we discovered that we wanted to take her out. There was a scene in the middle of the movie where she was flirting with with um, Andrew Reese Witherspoon's fiance in New York. And all of the women 
in the audience felt like they slept together. <laughs> okay. Like, that you never saw it in the scene. Mm-hmm. You, you know, basically, they're alone in the apartment, and she's, like, trying on a dress and turns around, and you see her thong underwear, and everyone is like, oh, yeah, they slept together. The biggest problem with that is that it was important to us to have in the movie you rooting for both of the guys because the point to that movie was the choice between a great guy and the right guy. Most romantic comedies, it's a asshole jerk and the right guy. And from the very beginning, you're like, oh, why is she even dating that fool, you know? Mm-hmm. Of course she's going to end up with the good guy. And in this movie, we were like, that's not what we wanted. We wanted the fiancé to be a great guy and her ex-husband to be the right guy. Um, so by having the fiancé, everybody going, oh, yeah, well, he slept with the intern, it defeated that as part of our premise to the movie. Because if he was sleeping around with other women, then, of course, you weren't rooting for him. So so that really was the the reason why we took her out. And then... From then on, we realized, you know, by taking her out, it actually made the movie a better movie anyway. That's interesting. With regards to New in Town, I had one question for New in Town. In the film, it starts right off into the action, or not the action, but the um, the Minnesota town. It gives you a real sense of their characters. And then mm-hmm. afterwards, you jump to Renee Zellweger and you set up her character. How come you didn't start off with Renee Zellweger in Miami and then go to set up the town? What was the reason behind that? Well, originally in the script, and the first time we filmed the movie, it did start with Renee's character in Miami. And basically, her character in Miami isn't very interesting. We originally, there were tons of scenes. Uh, it went on for like 12 minutes before she went. She got to Minnesota. And her character in Miami wasn't very nice and wasn't very funny. And it was sort of a very typical romantic comedy movie, and it was actually kind of boring because of that. And so early on in the test screening process, people were like, well, the movie isn't any fun until you get to Minnesota. So actually, it was one of our you know, post-supervisors or something like that that came up with the idea of, hey, why don't we start in Minnesota with the with the scrapbooking women, mm-hmm. and we wrote the script, and that was actually a reshoot to start in Minnesota, because basically it's like Minnesota is its own character, and Minnesota yeah. is what's funny in that movie. And so we worked it out, so it's like you start in Minnesota, and you really have a very brief time in, in Miami, because Miami just wasn't ever, you know, the best part of the movie, truthfully, mm-hmm. because it's like it wasn't very much fun and it wasn't, there wasn't much to it. And mm-hmm. as soon as you get to Minnesota, you're like, oh, now we have a movie. So that was a reshoot, really, the, okay. the added scene at the front. In post, because you said Minnesota was a character, in post, how did you, did you go about enhancing that in any way or was it all within the script and within the shooting? Uh, it was in the script, it was in the shooting, but yes, in post you can influence that by like being very careful with the sound and adding wind at times and making things sound colder, cold. Now, I mean, the thing is, it was actually it was shot in, in Winnipeg in the middle of winter, <laughs> so it was extremely cold. It was ridiculously cold, and I was up there for the shoot, and it literally was like minus 20 degrees every day. It it only went above freezing two days, the day I arrived and the day I left. Every day <laughs> in between that was at least minus, you know, like 10 degrees or something like that. If it got above zero degrees, it was actually a rather warm day. 
<laughs> so what was good about that is people were really, really cold on screen, too. So mm-hmm. Renee was a serious trooper because she was running around. There was a whole section of the movie where she had to be in a skirt, and she was running around in a skirt in minus 10-degree weather. You know, I think she put on something like three or four, you know, stockings or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> to try to stay at least not actually get injured. I mean, it was like weather that would kill you. So we, all of that, you know, we never had to add any breath or anything to anybody yeah. because, you know, that was just like, there was so much. Some days, sometimes people just look like they were on fire because of the amount of steam coming out of their mouth. But yes, I mean, that's where uh, we're. what I'm saying is that, uh, you know, we we made sure that through the cinematography and really the acting, that the, the Minnesota was a character. And, the, you know, we did a few things. And, and, oh, but there is one thing we did in post, which was the music, which is okay. that we, we really researched, like, the type of music that would be, you know, the type of instruments and music that was played in sort of Minnesota mm-hmm. in the backwoods-type areas and the traditional-type music. And we scored it using those instruments. So, you know, that's one thing we did to sort of give it that sort of Midwest. And and you know what? It's really hard to find that music because there isn't a lot of it. We actually, for temp reasons, we used a lot of actually music from the South, which got us kind of regionally, at least you felt like you were not in a normal romantic comedy. But then Mm -hmm. when we rescored it, there was a lot more sort of tuba and, you know, accordion instead of fly guitar and banjo. Now, I just have one more question. What is your favorite guilty pleasure film? Guilty pleasure film? Yeah. Grease, probably. I don't know oh, if that's yeah. guilty pleasure. But Grease is, is probably my favorite movie. and uh, The movie I've seen the most as far as something I just like to watch mm-hmm. and sing along. <laughs> <laughs> what about, what about it? Is it? Is it just that it's a fun get out there and have fun film? I think I think it's because it's a fun film that, and there's something to be said about like when it came out. I was at an age where it's like the the songs were played on the radio all the time. They were like top ten songs, so it's like I know all the songs and I can sing along with them. Not very well, but I can <laughs> sing along with them. And uh, I don't know. I just like watching that movie. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much for letting me interview. I don't want to take any more of your time away from you because I know you're busy. No uh, problem. Let me know when your, your film comes out, and I'll post it on the, the site and let people know. Well, that's our podcast for this week. I'd like to thank Troy Takaki for joining me this week. I'd also like to thank the American Cinema Editors and Jenny McCormick, as well as Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.